Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry out to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait, O Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Luke chapter 2, verse 22 to 38. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, which also basically means every firstborn male shall be dedicated to the Lord. And to the offer and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two pit young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and is and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to him for according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace for according to your word. For my eyes have seen salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband 70 years from when she was a virgin, and then a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer all night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speaking to him with all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Thanks, Julie. Um, this season of Advent, Christmas, we have been looking at the Psalms of Ascent. Um, and the Psalms of Ascent were prayers that the people of Israel um, sang on their way up as they marched towards the temple in Jerusalem. And as they climbed, they prayed. Just like that. Get it right? Kind of an intense moment. God's presence. And as they climbed, they prayed, and they were seeking God, and they asked him to meet them in the temple. They believed that God's presence would meet them in the temple. They would 
seek in earnest and believed that his presence would meet them there because that's where he said he would meet them. And Advent um, is a kind of that season too, in a way. We're counting down the days towards Christmas. And it's kind of in this small an acknowledgement that we are counting down too as they counted their steps up to Jerusalem. We count and these days to where God is present to us in Jesus. That's the point of this season and this celebration. And I think that's all good in theory, but I imagine that we might want to ask ourselves, what does it actually mean to understand and look forward to the presence of God? For some, the idea of being in the presence of God is comforting. And for some, the idea of being in the presence of God is scary. Or there's a little bit of uncertainty that's attached, or maybe even some skepticism. I wonder how I'm received in God's presence, maybe is the question. What does God actually think about me? What does people actually think about me? And church can be the place where we find ourselves we find ourselves pretending and hiding because we're not that certain. And this week I was talking to a friend and she was with her husband in a counseling session and she said it felt really vulnerable. It was a session that felt really vulnerable for her because of what she was saying. She said that she was letting him see her inside ugliness. And the fear was that if he saw that, he would reject her. We all have that fear. That if we show up with our ugly, we won't be loved. We'll be rejected. So we hide, we pretend. I think we do that with God too. Because to be seen and loved, to be truly seen and loved, feels almost impossible. Feels like that is the ultimate impossibility. That if we're truly seen for who we are, that the response of the people around us or the response of God would be love. We find that hard to comprehend. And that can be true of the people who are the closest to us or the people that we don't know at all. And so the psalmist captures um, some of this in why he encourages the people to march into the presence of God. So before we read it, let's pray. Jesus, thanks that you have something you want to tell us about what it means to march into your presence. And all of us in this room come with our own level of um, feeling related to that. What it means to actually be in your presence, what that means for us. And so, Holy Spirit, would you call us into what is true? True about us and true about you and true about each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. 
Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you would count iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, Yahweh, the personal God. For with the Lord, Yahweh, there is steadfast love. With him there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So initially there is this cry of help that comes out of the depths, out of these deep waters. I'm kind of in over my head here. Yeah, help me out. About to drown. And out of that place comes a cry for help. Out of a place of need. And need maybe isn't sufficient enough language. It's out of a place of desperation. And he's asking God to be attentive and to bring mercy in that place of desperation. And then two times, there's this word that is used in verse 3 and verse 6, a word that we don't often use. Iniquity. How many of you used that word this week? Yeah, none of you, right? Oh, maybe one. Well done. Busted out the word iniquity in your office, like, break time. <laughs> Probably not. Um, it's one word, there's a few words in the Bible, that refer to when we're not in step with God. And the one of those words is iniquity, one that we're probably more familiar with is sin. The word sin basically means that um, there's been a violation or an abandonment of relationship with God or with the other. That would be a description of the word sin. There's also the word transgression. Yeah? Anyone? Transgression? Getting a few nods? Yeah. Also a word in the Bible that communicates that we're out of step. And that means that we've broken trust. We've broken trust with somebody next to us, or we've bro broken trust with God, and the word there would be transgression. And then there's the word iniquity, which maybe is the least familiar. And the Bible Project does a really good um, video on all of these three words and how they're used textually in the Bible. And in the word iniquity, um, the Hebrew word literally means bent, like bent over. Like if you were to use this word, Maybe an, a person who has pain and they're like doubled over. So iniquity could literally mean bent. Or if there's a road that instead of being straight is kind of twisted and crookedy, like it's bent, that would be the same word, iniquity. But in relation to people's behaviors, the word iniquity is related to their choices and conscience, which is bent. It's out of shape. It's twisted or distorted. And so examples of this kind of twisted or distorted choice or conscience would be things like lying and murder and adultery. And also injustice to the poor. That would all be kind of used, this word would be used in a descriptor of iniquity. But the word doesn't actually just refer to distorted behavior. It also refers to the crooked consequences 
of that kind of behavior. The distorted actions and the consequences so hurt people. Broken relationships. Cycles of retaliation. That would also be seen as iniquity. And none of this, whether it's lying or murder, injustice to the poor, or whether it's the hurt that comes from that, none of this is how the, describe, the Bible describes people as being truly human. It's not how God made us. And so one of God's responses is that he offers us to, to let us sit in the consequences of our distorted behavior. And the language there would be like, you bear your iniquity. You carry it. That's what happens. It's when humans sit in this distorted reality. We bear the iniquity. We carry the weight of it. But there's another response that God has. And that response is that he offers to carry it for us. He offers to carry the responsibility God forgives people by taking responsibility for those crooked behaviors and the consequences. He assumes those for us so that that weight can be lifted from us and that we can walk free. So instead of carrying that heaviness, he will take on that heaviness on our behalf. And carrying iniquity is the most common Hebrew phrase for God's forgiveness. He will carry it. That is the most common Hebrew phrase for his forgiveness. And the psalmist believes this. He is behind this. This for there is forgiveness with you. So why is he calling these people to step into the presence of God? Because with God, there is forgiveness and you can get that burden taken off you. And so out of that space of desperation, the truth is declared. Because we all know what it is to carry the consequences of other people's behaviors or to carry the consequences of our own. And then the psalmist waits. He waits, he waits for Yahweh. Waits like guards who watch for the morning. Because the watchmen count on daybreak. It's guaranteed, right? We don't go to bed in the morning and we're not like, ooh, wonder if the sun's going to come up. No, dude, you know, when you wake up in the morning, the sun's going to be up. That's it. The watchmen wait for the morning. It's guaranteed. And the psalmist is counting on Yahweh. The psalmist is counting on God to see the ugly, to see the distortion, and to still love. He says, for with the Lord, verse 7, there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. What can you expect as we walk up to the temple, as we go in there? What can you expect, people? Steadfast love and plentiful redemption. He will be faithful to love you and he will be faithful to free you from those burdens. And then verse 8, he will redeem Israel from all iniquities, not just his belief 
and hope for himself, but it is this collective hope. Let's all go, dude. Let's all go. Come on. Let's go. It's like march up to the temple to get into the presence of God because there is love there. And there's, yeah, love there and life there. And there's going to be relief from your burden. For Israel, for all of them. So it's a call for them to make their way into the temple. Because what did they believe? They believed that God's presence would be liberating. And so as you're sitting there, you might be like, all right, cool, Heather. How does that become a call for us at Advent? Well, the temple was a place of the presence of God for the people of Israel. And we don't really have a place that is akin to that or equivalent in terms of a physical space. The church may be, but it's not the same. It's not the same at all. Because they were making their way there because God, Yahweh, had told them that they could literally meet with God at the temple, that his presence was in the temple. And that was true. And then he said that that was the place that you'll be able to make things right with me and with each other through the sacrifice. And as we look to the New Testament reading today in Luke chapter 2, it's a place where we meet these two characters. They're in the temple. And they're older members of Israel. I think they're the kind of people that you look at and they're not too fussy. They've lived enough life to be not too fussy. Imagine them to have like a solid strength to them. Place of comfort and reassurance. They're believable. Kind of relate them to my like 98-year-old grandma. She's really believable. She's a solid place of strength. Yesterday, Alyssa Bertelstrom got married and she had her grandpa Bob marry her. Yes! And like as Grandpa Bob is standing up there, I got that same feeling about Granddad Bob. The solid strength, place of comfort and reassurance is believable. And we meet these two. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in the years. It's a kind way of saying it, right? She was an old lady. She'd lived with her husband seven years, and then she was a widow. She'd been a widow for 84 years, and then she lived and spent most of her days in the temple. Simeon. This man upon whom the Holy Spirit rests means that he is attentive to, to God and to his presence. He's a deeply committed man. He's a man of character. He's believable and trustworthy. And then there's Anna, probably in her 90s, maybe even over 100. And she's a prophet. The text says so explicitly, which means that she is endowed with the Holy Spirit. 
And she's placed in a family. She's of the tribe of Asher, which means she's an Israelite. And there they both are, both associated with the temple. And who these people are and where they are is significant. And what they are doing, they're waiting. They are representatives of waiting Israel. And they're not, they're not kind of resigned. They're not cynical or distracted. They're waiting like guards who are waiting for the daybreak. They are counting on God's presence. They're expecting. They're expecting Yahweh. And in verse 37, it says that Anna is fasting, which is a picture that she is communicating that things are not right. All is not well. Fasting is an active way of praying and waiting. She's entreating God to set things right. She's probably under some of her own burdens. And Simeon, it says, is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Again, there's this expectancy, and he's waiting for the consolation. He's waiting for Israel's wounds and grief and story and life to be comforted. There's a long-awaited hope and a rescue that he's banking on related to God. And we know that because this consolation is connected in verse 26 to Messiah, to a king, to savior. And the question is, who would it be? And in walk Mary and Joseph. And they have the little baby Jesus, little nugget. It's probably like just over a month old, like 44 days probably is how old he was. It's a tiny tot. And we know that he's probably that age because in Leviticus chapter 12, it says eight days after circumcision, add 33 days, and then that's the day when you take, um, as a woman, you go into the temple. And so we know how old the child is, and he's tiny. He's about 44 days old. And so Mary and Joseph, they walk into the temple with Jesus. And they encounter these two older members of the Israelite community who are there in the temple waiting for consolation, attuning to the presence of God. Simeon sees Jesus, gets a hold of him and holds him up in his arms. And he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. In Jesus, he sees salvation or redemption. In Jesus, he sees freedom. And not just for him individually, but for his people, Israel. And not just for them, but also, he says, for Gentiles. This is a descriptor that basically describes the whole of humanity. So in Jesus, he sees plentiful redemption. There's this collective hope, and it's not just a collective hope for Israel. It's a collective hope for all peoples everywhere, at all times. 
that a freedom is available to all. And he describes Jesus as light. What does light do? Light lets you see. When you walk in your house at night and you flip on the light, you're very happy because then you get to see all your furniture. Right? Might bust your knees otherwise. When you're camping, middle of Moab, good job you got that light on your head, especially when you've got to creep out of the tent at two in the morning to use the loo. Right? What does light let you do? Light lets you see. Lets you see. So he describes Jesus as light. Jesus' presence lets us see. It's a revelation of who God is. And that is glory to Israel because they've had these little glimmers of light, Yahweh's love and faithfulness and covenant commitment through the prophets and the law and the temple. But now these glories, this light expands into glory in the person of Christ. Into the physical temple, the place where humans met with God's presence, steps Jesus who is now the personal presence of God with us. What is true and has always been true of Yahweh is now made real in Jesus. It wasn't ever meant to be limited to a particular people in a particular place and time. is meant for all. You know what that means? That means that when we are in deep waters, we can cry out to him. And in those deep waters, he can be counted on. He can be counted on to forgive. He can be counted on to love. He can be counted on for freedom. Which is why we, like them, are called to count on Jesus. That we can count on him to see our ugly and respond with love. That he sees our ugly And responds with love. And I think believing that might actually be one of the hardest things for humans to face. Because like I said at the beginning, that's a hard thing to believe. The voice of shame comes in. Sneaky shame. Shame likes to tell us that we're not worthy. We're not worthy of that love. That seenness doesn't equal lovedness. That somehow we don't qualify. Or the things that we've done disqualify us. 
And maybe that's how you felt when you walked in here this morning. That there's something about you or something that you've done that disqualifies you. Disqualifies you from the love of God. Disqualifies you from the love of the person sitting next to you. If they could see you, truly see you, they wouldn't love you. the voice of shame. Then there's the voice of pride. Sneaky pride. The voice of pride tells us to believe that we earn our love. That we prove our worth by what we do. And that we're only loved if we're perfect. Or that we pay back somehow what we owe. Pride tells us that we deserve to sit in our consequences. We deserve the weight that we're carrying. I think sometimes we'd like to think that that's shame, but I think that's actually the voice of pride. Yep, I'm here and I deserve it. I deserve the weight of these consequences. Maybe if you're honest, that's what you believe. You have to earn it, to prove it, to be perfect. That you have to be able to sit there and hold the weight of it. When we believe these voices, unlike the psalmist, we sit in the deep. We sit in over our head. And we forget God. We avoid him altogether. And what he has to give is irrelevant to pride. And it's absent to shame. Freedom comes. Freedom comes from the cry of a desperate soul who believes God can be counted on to see the ugly and love. That's where freedom comes. Freedom comes from the cry of a desperate soul who believes that God can be counted on to see the ugly and show up with love. Simeon says something really curious next. He says, he's holding the baby. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, you know. And then Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, this woman who has just been on this long journey and she's just given birth to this baby and this man has come and taken this small infant and is holding it up and he says these words to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Dude, Simeon, that does not sound much like a blessing. 
He blessed her and said that. A sword's about to go, go straight through your heart, lady. You're like, oh, no, don't know how I feel about that kind of blessing. I think we'll just take our little tails and head out the temple. Simeon knows something. He's been a man who has studied the law. He's likely read the books of the prophets like Isaiah. So Simeon knows that Mary's heart is going to break. The spirit through him speaks of the reality of her son. She has the love of a mother. I'm not a mother, but I feel like I've got the love of a mother. He knows that her son will suffer. And he knows that her soul will feel it. Because he is going to be a sign that will be opposed. And that sign, as we know, is a sign of love. Love towards humanity in general. But we also know that it's going to be opposed all the way to death. The love that he carries and the love that he has is going to be opposed all the way to death. He's going to be denied by his closest friends. It's going to be mocked. Going to be beaten and scourged, and she's going to watch it. And then he'll be killed. The sword will pierce through your soul, Mary. Isaiah 53 describes this moment as the suffering servant or the Christ carrying our iniquities. Reflected further in First Peter chapter two, he carries this for us. Jesus creates a way for us to cry out from our desperate places, and he guarantees that what we he will give in return is always freedom and love. Guarantees it. He carries the consequences all the way to their logical conclusion. There's the burden. Carries them all the way to their logical conclusion. And this moment that Simeon speaks of is a moment that speaks to our shame and it also speaks to our pride. We don't have to carry it. That we're not unworthy of love and belonging. That the consequences have been carried for us. And what's revealed to us is that we can show up in the presence of God and have an expectation that we'll be forgiven. And the thing that he wants to have transpire between us is love. But again, the human heart finds it hard to believe. 
hard to believe in the love of God as revealed to us in Jesus. We get uncomfortable. Even if we've said at one point that we believe in Jesus, it feels like the rest of our life is this act of learning to believe more and believe and believe again. Could it fundamentally be true in this moment? I watched just recently a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Yes, I did not grow up on Mr. Fred Rogers, people. I didn't. Didn't know anything about Fred Rogers until I went to the movie theater. And so then I did some research after I went with my good friend for Adam and she didn't know about Mr. Rogers either. And so we're like, all right, let's get our exposure to the American Mr. Rogers. And we were both deeply touched by this story. And you're all like, yeah, of course you were. Because you all have been probably in your entire lives, like household name, Mr. Fred Rogers in the neighborhood, right? And the movie with Tom Hanks, also a beloved human. And afterwards, because I was so taken by this person, Mr. Fred Rogers, I was like, I'm going to watch some interviews by him. I'm going to like find out who this guy was that he was interacting with. Let's read some New York Times articles. So that's what I did. And so the movie is based on the writer who follows Fred Rogers, and he was an Esquire writer. And he had a bad reputation. The reputation of this writer was that he was ruthless. He didn't want to be really in proximity to him because just kind of didn't really want to read what he wrote about you afterwards. And I was watching an interview by this gentleman, and he said, yep, I was the bad boy journalist. And um, I was asked to interview, I was given this, this project, and he's like, and I was asked to interview the nicest man in the world. I was like, that's hilarious. He's like, yep, self-proclaimed bad boy journalist. Asked to go and spend some time with the nicest man in the world. And so the movie shows the weights that this gentleman was carrying, the burdens. He had a harsh relationship with his father. He had anger. He was ruthless in his writing, lived with despair. And Mr. Rogers asked for him. Mr. Rogers read everything that that man had written. And he asked for him, give me that one. And the people who worked with him, Mr. Rogers, they're like, dude, are you crazy? This guy's ruthless. It's about to go down and it is not going to be pretty, yo. (laughs) And so um, he just recently come out with this interview by Kevin Spacey in 1997 and that was the one that was probably his worst and right after it Mr. Rogers is like bring him to me he looked past all of that and he saw a person and that's what I've come to learn that's what Mr. Rogers always did right looks past all of that and he sees a person And so this interaction that this gentleman has with Fred Rogers is transformative. And there's this New York Times writer who was a friend of Tom Junard, that was the journalist, and this is what she said about her friend and his relationship or these interactions that he had with Fred Rogers. She said, 
Just being around him, my friend, just being around Fred was enough to make him see the world differently. And then to be loved by him was enough to make him a completely different kind of journalist. A completely different kind of person. She says, just being around him, my friend, was enough to make him see the world differently. And then to be loved by him was enough to make him a completely different kind of journalist. A completely different kind of person. Jesus wants us to be in his presence. Bring him here to me. Because he knows that just being around him will be enough to make us see the world differently. And then to be loved by him will make us, will be enough to make us completely different kinds of people. Jesus calls us out of the cycles of blame and judgment and resentment and vindication. Calls us away from shame and away from pride. To believe in the forgiveness and love that he offers so that we can find freedom. So that we can feel unburdened. And as we live there, As we live there, believing, trusting, attuning to his presence and his person, we are liberated, but we liberate not only ourselves, but other people too. That was true for Fred Rogers. As he lived in his own lovedness and freedom, he offered it to the people around him too to a random Esquire journalist, to tons of small humans, and likely to you. As we live in our own lovedness and freedom, we end up being able to offer it to others too. Fred Rogers did it. So can we. Out of the depths, cry out. The Lord will hear your voice. He'll be attentive to your plea for mercy. If the Lord should mark iniquities, who would stand? But with the Lord, there's forgiveness. Wait for the Lord. Let your soul wait for the Lord. In his word, hope. More than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Oh, Missio. Hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love.
wanting to know it. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with him, it's plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. There's enough freedom to go around. And he will redeem, Missio. He will redeem, Missio, from all of our iniquities. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the power of your word. Because it reveals to us who you are. And we do well to believe you. To believe that you don't want us to sit in the burdens of our consequences or the burdens of the, the things that weight us down that others have done, but instead you want to carry that to usher us into your presence, to believe that even when we come in all of our ugliness, you see. You see that and it doesn't um, repel you. It provides openness for us to be recipients of love. Thank you for men like Fred Rogers that understood his own loveness and freedom and then had the capacity to offer that. So Jesus, we need to believe. We we need to believe that in you there is steadfast love and faithfulness. We need to believe that in you is plentiful redemption because then that's the story that we'll live out of. The world around us can't afford not to know it. We can't afford not to know it. So help us to believe. Help us to trust. And as we think about Advent and your presence and your nearness, help us not to hide from you, but instead to be ushered into your presence. Because that presence is good for us. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Monsieur, we come to this table. It's a table that declares Christ's love for us. The, the juice is here. The, the bread is gluten-free. You're all welcome. And then if there's people on the side, or there will be people on the side, if you need someone to pray with you, if you're having a hard time believing, or you need someone to see you're ugly so they can touch you and remind you that you're loved, then please do come and be prayed for this morning. Monsieur, let's continue worshiping together.